0: Recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up. Turn it up. Turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy, and you and Christie.
1: Welcome to episode sixty-one of the PR and Law Podcast, and Happy Father's Day. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, along with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan is an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon.com. LLP in Toronto, Canada and online at duntreum.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend and you can follow us on the socials, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook and we're also on YouTube and SoundCloud if you prefer. And uh, make sure you get our newsletter too. It's a prlawpodcast.club. You and how are things? Uh, happy Father's Day
2: to you, sir well thank you Cameron I appreciate that um I had what will probably be a father's day I will remember for the rest of my life Cameron why is that what made this uh this one so special well I got my second shot today I've been jabbed wow Wow. welcome to the club you are uh you're, you're officially vaccinated that's right. I'm fully vaxxed. How does it feel? <laughs> so what you say, what do you say? It's like you're half vaxxed and fully vaxxed is, I don't know what, the, what I the, guess so. the parlance is.
1: Yeah, I don't even know. I just say vaccinated. And then people say two shots, both. Yeah, and they go, yeah, yeah, both shots. But how do you how do you feel? I mean, it's been uh, I, I know people feel differently when this happens because it's kind of marks the end for a lot of people of this really tumultuous time.
2: Well, it's weird, right? Because, you know, your whole existence for however long this has been, or I, or actually I, I said that how long it's been. And my, um, my wife immediately piped in March 20th, oh, March well, yeah. 20th here was the date that everything shut down. Uh, March 20th, 2020. I mean, immediately she knew the date. So I guess that's, that was the the wow. date, sort of the real jumping off point here. But um, yeah, it, it, you know, it's, it's surreal in that it's just, it just it's it's all of a sudden it's over. It's kind of like that, that that, that's it. And I mean, I understand. I I recognize there's still variants that are out there. You know, we're still largely locked down. There are countries all over the world that are getting hit with new waves. I I, I realize all these things. But, you know, for your own sort of psyche, it is sort of a bizarre kind of abrupt end to something you've been anticipating for such a long time.
1: You know, I mean, people have been talking about, you know, the the vaccines and, and getting life back to normal for so long that I, I haven't even really taken it very seriously, to be honest, because it feels like we're still a long way from like being back to what it was like in 2019, you know, if we ever go back to that. But in the last few days, I've been optimistic for the first time through this whole thing. And I think we had one case yesterday that was imported, but I mean, we've gone two months without any cases here that happened in Hong Kong. And, you know, there's starting to be announcements of places opening up. So Phuket in Thailand, for instance, which is not far, uh, they're going to open up next month for tourists. If you can prove that you've got both shots, um, you can come in with no quarantine. Uh, Hong Kong is talking about doing the same, and I heard Canada is also talking about doing the same in in July. So it looks like there's some really good news on the
2: horizon, provided that, uh, you know, you've got both shots. Wow. Well, and they're not qualifying which shots you need to have. I don't know if you've heard about the whole hullabaloo that made the news here, Cam, with um, concert goers that had purchased tickets to see Bruce Springsteen no. in Manhattan on Broadway. And for whatever reason, there was announcements, an announcement that if you had had a second dose of AstraZeneca as your second dose vaccine, then you were not permitted To attend the show, they were discriminating against uh, individuals who had been vaccinated with AstraZeneca. They've since overturned the policy, as I understand. Um, But Saturday Night Live had a had a similar policy that they had passed, Um, just kind of a bizarre, bizarre move to take. But um, I'm curious to see if this is going to become an issue um, elsewhere as well.
1: Well, we've talked about AstraZeneca on this show. I mean, they ran into some problems on on blood clots and things like that. But I, but I have felt kind of from the beginning, they're the vaccination brand that seems to be the most questioned uh, out of out of all of the main Western ones, I would say. And I, I don't know why that is. I mean, we, we looked at it when we were talking on the show about some of their communications problems early in the process. But there must be something there because it looks like yeah it does run into these problems and uh, yeah it seems to be singled out for this kind of thing I don't know what's going on
2: yeah I, I really don't either um, I suspected this is also going to be short lived as well right mm. I think once we sort of hit herd immunity levels um, in 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 more and more countries we're not going to be you know taken. Concerns about uh, whether or not you've been hit with AstraZeneca or Pfizer or Moderna. Hopefully, we'll just get past it.
0: Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word. PR Law Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to us at PRLawPodcast.com. That's all one word. Ask us at PRLawPodcast.com or on social media with the hashtag PR law pod that's hashtag
2: b-r-l-a-w-p-o-d
1: all right you and i understand you've got something to mark father's day today
2: yeah i wanted to try and stay stay on topic here cam and you know we haven't talked about paternity leave mm. on this show yeah and it struck me that father's day might be an appropriate occasion to for sure sort of hit, the, hit the topic right yeah absolutely um I mean, you know, there's lots of really, really good social science evidence out there of the benefits of of children who grow up with a present and engaged dad, right? I mean, things like higher IQ test scores by the age of three, fewer psychological problems, uh, children who are more likely to have friends and positive relationships. They've even drawn correlations between young children who had healthy relationships with fathers and their ability to earn more money later in life. So... Mm -hmm you know, there's there's a really good foundation of social science evidence here. Unfortunately, the law around the world has been somewhat slow to adopt paternity leave as as a point of policy. And really, you know, I think there's a lot of compelling arguments as to why they should.
1: You know, I mean, paternity leave is is one of those subjects where I feel like if it comes up People chime in and a lot of people have opinions on it. And then there's sort of the the male machismo, which is part of it too, I think to some degree. Uh, I know governments haven't been kind in general to paternity leave, but then there's the social stigma of it, too, in some in some countries and in some situations. But what's the situation now, Ewan?
2: Well, I mean, if we're looking globally, 26 of the world's richest 41 countries, Cam, offer some form of paternity leave. So, you know, I mean, not great, not terrible, I guess, depending on how you look at it. Interestingly, Japan and South Korea have what maybe, uh, arguably, some of the best policies in the world. So, I mean, in Japan, men are entitled to 52 weeks leave. Their leave is tax-free and paid at 67% of wages for the first 180, 180 days and then 50% thereafterwards. Um, in South Korea, men are entitled to 53 weeks of leave, and they get paid at 80% for the first three months. And then it drops down to, to 50. Um, you know, here in Canada, we have a, we have a pretty decent policy, but then again, the issue here is that ultimately you're only receiving coverage of about 55% of your average insured earnings. And then, you know, the expectation is that hopefully employers will, will top up. Um, and then of course there's the U S well, uh and i mean any of our listeners who who are in the us who happen to be parents um i'm sure they're very very much familiar with the fact that the us doesn't have any national federal paid leave policy cam and they are in some some pretty uh pretty rare company in this regard um it, It's it's just it's kind of shocking that in this day and age they don't have any form of federal paid leave. And that goes for women as well. This isn't unique to men.
1: So I think there's a lot of um, sort of asterisks and caveats we have to give here. So first off, I mean, you mentioned that there are 94 countries, I think, uh, that had uh, parental leave.
2: Well, actually, I didn't I didn't say 94. I said 26 of the world's richest 41. Right. OK. Offer, so 26 of 41. Of leave. Yeah. Right on.
1: OK. So, I mean, a, a lot of places and I, and I know I've talked about this here in Hong Kong. I think I might have mentioned this before, but it's five days for fathers. To me, there's not much difference between having no policy and having five days, <laughs> and I know, I mean, five days is better than zero days. Yes, of course, but it's also not a, a huge bit of progress from from zero. So I think that's kind of kind of questionable, and I wonder how many of those are, are, are similar that they're they're very short, you know, which isn't which is a bit of help, yes, of course, but 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 also not great. And then there's also whether society or culture in some of these places sort of allows you to take these days, or if there's a stigma around them as well, which I think might be a problem. I suspect in in Korea and Japan, no?
2: Well, yeah, you got it. In Japan, just over 5% of fathers took their leave. That's it. So, I mean, they've got this wonderful, wonderfully progressive policy, um, and only 5% of men are taking advantage of it. South Korea, you know, you're also right. Not much better. Um, We're looking at about 17% of men have taken it or take their leave. I mean, here in Canada, we're only talking about 24% nationally that, that take their paternity leave. So, you know, which of course begs the question, why? Why aren't men taking their leave? Kim? Well, I just want. To Why aren't ju- they taking it?
1: I just want to jump in too. Like in, in the U.S., so you're right. There's no. There's no federal policy, but but I do know that companies do sometimes step up on this and give their their staff some options around maternity and paternity leave. I don't think it's very good oftentimes when there's not a law backing it up. But but there are people who take leave in the U.S., right? For, for maternity and paternity leave, depending on where they work, what state they're in, what company they're working for, if it's a public sector job, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I, I just want to make sure our listeners are clear on that. These are, we're talking federal policies here, not, not necessarily how many people take leave or, or who gets it or who doesn't, just that at the federal level, it, it's very uneven.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's nothing whatsoever that precludes a company from offering a paid policy leave for, for, for women or for, or for men or for non-binary individuals, Mm -hmm. same sex couples, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, nothing at all. The question is, do they, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Do they, Mm -hmm. and, you know, and even if they do, are men actually taking, taking the leave? And, and again, you know, you sort of talked about some of, some of, the the stigma and, you know, around sort of cultural and societal pressures. And I think that that's a very real issue, Cam. I mean, even if you think just culturally in terms of what we consume in terms of film, television, commercials, I mean, tell me if this sounds familiar to you. How many times have you seen this in a sitcom or a commercial, you know, this sort of bumbling father in the kitchen who can't boil an egg, you yeah. know, he doesn't know how to use the washing machine. He can't mop a floor. He just wants to sit in his lazy boy and, you know, watch sports all day and drink beer. Um, you know, this is, this is sort of a stereotype that's perpetuate, perpetuated a particular norm about men and fathers and the role that they're supposed to play in the household. And it's been, it's been really, really damaging. I mean, there's no doubt about it. So we've got a lot of work to do in terms of, getting past that, addressing those issues. I think also, you know, you've got to look at the boomer generation generally and the world in which they grew up in, you know, the the concept of men taking leave a paternity leave i mean it was just it, it was it was unheard of i mean you're talking about really the first first generation of fathers who are even able to be in the room while their children were born um let alone taking some sort of leave from work so you know we've got a lot of ground to cover <laughs> i think you know we're making
1: yeah sorry, go ahead uh, sorry you and it's interesting that you mentioned the bumbling father because i did not even think about that like i thought about it the other way like like you're looking at it and i i get this um as in like a father doesn't think of themselves as a homemaker or being home or being involved in 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 the day-to-day of their children this way whereas i think that the more dangerous stigma is the one that fathers are supposed to provide and be at work and make sure that they look after everything and that they should be strong and not take days off, not take time off. They've got to sacrifice themselves that way. And staying home with children would somehow be there's a stigma around that. So it, it is interesting that we, we, you and I b- both thought of it differently that way, because I feel like there's just more pressure that men just aren't supposed to, you know, stay home from work with their kids because of the career or the money earning pressure uh, that they feel.
2: Yeah and and you're you're absolutely right. I think financial pressure is is a huge issue here as well, right? I mean even if you have a paid paternity leave, if you're lucky enough to live in a country that has one, you know, let's say they're offering something like 50% of your wages. Well, can you afford to live on 50% of your wages if your employer isn't going to, you know, we say top up, right? Which, you know, often employers will sort of step in and say, "Hey, you know, we know the government is Covering say 50% of your wages or 55%, percent will top up the remaining, you know, whatever. We'll say we'll throw in another 20 or another 25, 30 or maybe everything up to 100% for X number of weeks to, to float you. Um, but in the absence of that, uh, for a lot of fathers, you're absolutely right. I mean, they don't even have. That option, but even if they,
1: yeah, even if they top up another twenty percent. I mean, if if the father is the primary wage earner in in the household, even ten percent or fifteen percent short could be the difference between being able to stay home and not. Right, like
2: it it, it doesn't depend on the economics of the family involved absolutely absolutely it's 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 a huge issue and what's sort of interesting here when we look in even if we look at canada as sort of a case study you know we're sort of looking nationally about 55% of sort of a um of what what is kicked in by by the government and you know we know that only about 24% of canadians are actually taking the leave but if we look at quebec the province of quebec their leave covers up to 70% of income And when you hit that 70% threshold, something really interesting happens. Their numbers are are radically different, Kim. 93% of men in Quebec take their leave at 70% of income. So you can say that's still not 100%. But if you also look at it from an employer's perspective, now you're looking at a top-up obligation that's significantly lower to sort of hit that 100% threshold to really make it advantageous um, for, for a father to take that time off. So, you know, I think we've got to get to a place where we're getting higher levels of coverage such that there's, you know, a little more incentive for an employer to kick in some money. Um, because you're right, if it, if it doesn't work financially, it's not going to work in any other context either. Right.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, you know. I, I've struggled with this. So I, I don't have kids, as, as as you know, as I think the listeners know as well. Um, and I have thought about it, though, like, can I take paternity leave? Would I take paternity leave? And I have to say, like, if I'm being really frank here, I do think there is a stigma that's quite serious still. I think, you know, Asian countries and we touched on Japan and, and Korea, but I think generally across Asia. I mean, it's, it's a deeply uh, socially conservative society in a lot of these countries, including here in Hong Kong. And and I do like like I would want to take it for sure. But I do wonder about the stigma in sort of the 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 companies I've worked in over here over the years. I, I don't know because I've never seen anyone else do it. So it would be it would be a difficult choice. And I, I'm very sad to say that, you know, but it, it, it's an issue. And I think I think this speaks to how far we have to go in a lot of these places. I think Canada is much more sort of, I guess, enlightened in this way. And I think some other sort of socially progressive countries are. But, but this is going to be a challenge. Like, I, I don't think we're close to solving this problem. I think we're a long way away still.
2: Well, I I, I agree. I mean, a- anecdotally, I didn't take a uh, paternity leave. And I can tell you um, within my profession and doing, doing, doing what I do, there was a great deal of pressure for me to return to work almost immediately. I mean, I recall a conversation with a client um, who, when I advised her that I was you know, my wife and I were pregnant, she immediately said, well, you know, what's the impact going to be on my file? We were sort of in the middle of a a large piece of litigation. And, and that was an issue that she raised. Are you still going to be present? Um, and clearly there was an assumption that yes, I would. And there was certainly an assumption from, um, counsel that I worked with that, yes, I would be present. Um, there, there is, there's a great deal of societal pressure there. And I think that needs to fundamentally shift. Um, I think the pandemic has helped, dare I say it, mm-hmm. I think it's interesting, you know, you, you certainly read numerous accounts in, in, in publications about fathers who are connecting with their children for the first time. And a lot of them, a lot of these fathers can, they're immensely remorseful for the years that yeah. they've lost being present in their children's lives. Um, and you know what? I think that's a good thing. It's good because that will that will inform their decisions going forward and it will apply pressure on employers to adopt more progressive policies around paternity leave. I, and I also think that we're seeing those pressures being applied generationally. I mean, we know that millennials and Gen Z have a very, very different approach to work than Gen X and certainly than, than the boomers. Right. Um, and they are pushing for more progressive policies and, you know, paternity leave is, is among them. Mm Yeah. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see where we move going forward as they start to sort of move into those higher level decision-making positions.
1: I'm sure there are fathers out there who, you know, want to be in the office or don't want to be at home for whatever reason. I think there's some, but in general, like I, I really do believe that, that that fathers do want to spend more time with their kids. And I, I just feel like the society is structured in such a way where that's difficult and it's even difficult to say or to do uh, because of those stigmas and those, those pressures. So it, it's a, it's a tough environment. I, I'm glad that this is getting some attention, um, because yeah, you're you're right. I mean, you opened the segment talking uh, you know, about about fathers being involved with 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 their children. And that that's a that's a benefit to society overall. That's a benefit to the children. It's a benefit to how they grow and develop, you know, as you talked about. So yeah, these are these are really important issues. And yeah, I think, you know, millennials and, and Gen Z, they they they've taken a lot of these sort of broader issues and they are demanding more from their employers, not only in these ways, but many other ways. And so we are seeing things change quite, uh, quite quickly with the pressure from those two groups.
2: Two, two final points on this, Cam. The first, first one being that, you know, this also can make sense financially for employers. And I think inevitably it will make financial sense for them on a long enough timeline because it will have to, the pressure will get to a place that if they want to attract and keep top talent, They will have no choice but to incorporate more progressive paternity leave policies and maternity leave policies for that matter. Mm -hmm. The second point is that when we give men an opportunity to take leave, we also provide an opportunity for women to get back into the workforce faster. And getting women back into the workforce faster translates into lower attrition rates for working mothers and an ultimate increase in, in terms of the gender parity and gender equality in the workforce. So that's a huge, huge benefit too. And that has large reaching financial benefits for the overall economy. So everybody will win here on a long enough timeline.
0: Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on. And bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit prinlawpodcast dot com. That's prinlawpodcast dot com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out.
1: All right, you and I've been following a trend recently, and I think I touched on this uh, either last week or the week before. And it's this battle between uh, journalists and technology, and I mean technology in the broadest sense, in terms of companies, employees, founders. Silicon Valley, uh, and and other tech hubs in the world over basically how reporters are covering technology. And you and have you noticed, and I, I think, you know, I certainly have, but I don't know if sort of the broader public has, I assume so, but the tone of the coverage of technology in the last few years has radically changed from being optimistic and hopeful to blaming technology companies for a lot of the the ills that are affecting society
2: yeah well i mean you, you know you look at google remember when google was cool cam yeah <laughs> because it was it's hard to remember that but once upon a time google was cool even facebook was cool um but i don't think we're 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 making those kinds of arguments today
1: well yeah and in facebook's case i mean i th- <laughs> They're considered so evil at the moment, um, you know. And I, I really think a turning point here really was was the election of Donald Trump, which which really drew a lot of attention to just the power of these these social networks. Uh, you know, they're impacting democracies around the world, and they're resulting in sort of sectarian violence in some countries like Myanmar. So, so they have a lot of power, and you know, it the the, the tenor and the tone has shifted. Um, you know, in those years. And you have to go, you know, way back into the 70s and 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 Xerox. And it's been largely kind of fawning coverage of technology up until that point. And, you know, this is making technology companies, you know, a little bit antsy. They're a little bit unhappy about this uh, and they feel they're not getting a fair shake. And I can tell you, and I, I've said before, just in terms of disclosure, that I work at Tencent, which is a Chinese technology company. You know, these 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 companies do feel that that it's getting more difficult to, to, to sort of deal with with journalists. And you and you're familiar with Andreessen Horowitz. They're one of the, the large venture capital firms in Silicon Valley. Um, they're actually not in the top five biggest, but, but they're very well known. But anyway, it's, you know, to the point where a lot of these founders in San Francisco are even blocking journalists on Twitter. And it's, it, you know, it's really becoming a back and forth. So why am I bringing this up? Well, in January... Andreessen, Mark Andreessen, said, you know what, enough of this bad coverage. We're going to launch our own media organization and we're going to tell our own story and we're just not going to deal with you journalists anymore. And that publication came out last week. Now, at the time, Ewan, in January, they published a couple of job openings at the time, which kind of gave an indication into what they wanted to do. And they said that this publication would be, quote unquote, unapologetically pro-tech, pro-future, pro-change, but also that, quote, we are also informed optimists, not freewheeling futurists making predictions without any skin in the game. And they said they would produce content in-house and they would welcome outside writers. And, you know, a person close to the firm at that time said, basically, they want a more formalized vehicle to get narratives and stories out there without having to go through the press and so that's kind of what they sound to do and you can see this new publication because it was launched last week at future.com that's what they've called it
2: all right i'm gonna pull this up future.com huh? correct
1: and i have no idea what they had to pay to get that domain <laughs> because i assume someone else owned it at one point huh. anyway if you take a look at it, it doesn't look like a fancy publication, but it is it's very text heavy. There's a lot of articles on there, and some of them look quite, quite interesting. There's a lot of sort of deep dives into technology subjects and sort of where we're going. And um no pictures or anything on the homepage. Um, but you can see it's it's very kind of has an academic
2: feel to it a little bit. Yeah, it kind of it, it it is interesting. There's no There's no photos of any kind. Hey, I mean, you're you're not joking. It's it's strictly text. That's all that's here. Reporters have asked
1: Andreessen Horowitz, who is this for? What is this going to focus on? Like, what do you want to say with this website? And so, you know, they've come out and said basically they want topics that are compelling, you know, with a broad theme of rational optimism. So, again, this optimism thing keeps coming up here and it's something that they, they really believe in. Uh, they want a future focused informational and editorial content, not day to day stuff. So they are looking at big picture kinds of things. They don't want to cover technology, you know, on the day to day beat, you know, the way the information does or The New York Times does or Wired does. And and they also said, you know, at the beginning and and they really want to focus on sort of explainers and how to and get people more familiar with with some of the concepts in technology. And on this one, I I actually agree. This comes up a lot that. You know, some of the technology coverage now is leaving people behind because they don't understand how it works and they don't understand the concept very well. And I think this is actually a, a, a good area for them to go into. Um, and they have said they want to stay away from politics. Like they, they really want to focus on the technology on the future. And then who is it for you? And well, they say tech people, which is very broad and the tech curious. So I guess tech people are people, you know, who are either in the industry or know it well. And then those who kind of want to learn it or want to get into it. And that's kind of what they're what they're thinking of putting together. I mean, you know, you've just glanced at it, uh, you know, so I'm not going to hold you to account here. But, you know, kind of what are your impressions?
2: Well, I mean, yeah, it's I, I mean, I guess it's relatively clean. You've got big, bold headlines and that's it. I mean, there's no sort of, you know, no, no, no sort of additional text at all. It's like, here's your headline. Here's your here's your author. I'm just clicking on something now. I mean. I don't know. I, I guess it's it's of the tech, by the tech, for the tech, right? I mean, I guess that's that's the idea. The reason I want to bring this up is
1: because this is sort of a more extreme example of what companies are going through, not just in technology, but but in all kinds of forms. And, you know, I think I, I've talked a bit on the show when I was at the exchange, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. And, you know, at the time that I joined there, we, we we had a website that was extremely basic. It didn't really work on mobile phones. You know, there was no social networks. There was no, 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 nothing really. It was almost like a government regulatory website. But by the time I left there, you know, we had developed a, a really strong content creation team, and that meant that we were writing our own articles. You know, we were publishing our own, our own graphs. We were publishing our own research. We were publishing a lot of material. Um, that, that we can go do. And the Internet's been around a long time now. I mean, it's not new, but I still feel like companies largely still don't realize, you know, the potential or the capability that they have to to really get their message out and affect change. And, you know, Andreessen and Horowitz keeps saying they're going to go direct, go direct. And they mean go direct to the reader, to the consumer and not go through the media. And this is exactly some of the things that I've Sort of put in presentations that I've given over the years that we used to have this this filter that if a company wanted to get its message out, you had to go to the media and the media would you had no way to guarantee that your message would go through the media and out the other end because they're a filter or they could be a wall. They could just block it and say, no, we we don't think this is newsworthy. We don't want to publish this or we don't want to talk about this or they take what you've said and they filter and change it and kind of reconstruct it in a different context. The point being that the company just doesn't have control, right? I mean, the journalism organizations or the journalists have the control in that situation, but you don't have to go through that anymore. And to some degree, journalists are still going to cover you and they can still do that, but you're not beholden to them in the same way that you can go and tell your message the way that you want to. And, you know, I am surprised in this day and age that there's still not more companies doing this. I think there's still a bit of a stigma around, well, nobody's going to take a company blog seriously or nobody's going to take a company social media site seriously. And that's partially true, but you you can get around that pretty easily. And if you've got good content and if you're writing it in a way that's honest and true and doesn't sound like company propaganda, you can go a long way with that content. And I think, you know, what Andreessen Horowitz are doing is really taking this to the extreme because they are trying to sort of do this for an entire industry uh, of technology, which, you know, most companies obviously are not going to do. But this is something that companies can consider on a smaller scale.
2: I mean, I guess my question is this, though, Cam. I mean, who outside of tech circles is actually going to read this? Right. I mean, you know, the majority of your public, anything that they consume that relates to tech, they're not consuming it because they're actively seeking it out. They're consuming it because it happens to land in, you know, whatever sort of social media streams they they look at or particular pieces of, of you know, media that they read on a day to day basis. I mean, unless they're specifically seeking out tech content, Who outside of these circles are actually going to read this?
1: So you kind of answered the question in there, Ewan, which is social media. So, I mean, these guys have the website set up. There's the articles. They've got writers from outside the firm and some of the writers are from inside the firm. So these guys are going to be, especially from outside the firm. If they get a story published on this site, they're going to be sharing it on their LinkedIn, on their Facebook, on their Twitter, on maybe even their their TikTok, you know, depending on what it is. And so it will turn up out there. If you're clicking around social media, you very well might come across one of these stories because the people involved in them are going to be sharing them pretty heavily. Right. And that really is how most people find stuff. These days. And I mean, they're very clear here. This isn't meant for sort of the everyday person, right? They said it's for tech people and the tech curious. And if you do kind of want to read about tech and you do check things out or you do follow a couple of people, there's a pretty good chance this is going to pop up in your feed somewhere. Um, Just the way sort of Twitter works and the way Facebook works.
2: Yeah, I, I can see that. I guess that makes sense. I'm just looking at law as code, a legal system shaped by software. Apparently, the U.S. spends more on legal costs than uh, any other country in the world. Cameron, shocking! <laughs> I would have never guessed. <laughs> <laughs> makes up 2.3 percent of the entire comp, the entire U.S. economy. Wow.
1: Yeah, you know, I I did want to just before we wrap this one up, you and like, so so they have seven staffers now, um, which is which is pretty good, and you know the the interesting thing that I think here, Ewan, is they are kind of unapologetic about what they're doing. So like, obviously this is still a, a venture capital firm. And so you think, well, there's kind of a conflict of interest here. Is there not? And well, yeah, there is, except they don't care. <laughs> they have said like, we're, we're going to talk about the world, the way we see it about the things that we believe in. And that's going to be their, their investee companies. And, uh, they just have no issue with that, and I think, in a way, that's kind of refreshing because I, I don't mind this if if it's declared that way, right? Like if they say, like, "Look, of course we have skin in the game. Of course we've invested in these companies, so of course it's going to be positive or it's going to be optimistic." That's fine. As just let me know, just let me know, and you know what what this conflict is, and and I, I'm fine with it. But I think you know, looking at what this is going to mean for, for journalists in general. And, I, you know, I read an article from from Matthew Panzerino at TechCrunch. And, and, you know, he said basically that investigative journalists will be unaffected by this because they're the ones that dig through things and, you know, they're going really deep into, into subjects and that they might even find some of the work done on Future.com helpful, you know, in that respect. However, he said, quote, For those who thrive on access, I'd expect a good chunk of that access to get swallowed by future, especially for the firm's portfolio companies. And I think that's interesting because, you know, when we talk about the media, there are different reasons. Companies at different stages in their evolution or at different sizes or different locations, different you know, locales, you go to the media for different reasons. And usually if you're a smaller company that's a startup or, you know, it's your, your, your seed round of, of funding, you might not get much media coverage, right? And so you 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 really want it. Um, you're going out there and you're trying to get your name out there in a big way. And, you know, this could change that because if they can go to future, if it's a, you know, a Marc Andreessen, Ben Horowitz invested company you know they go to future and do it there potentially and so this this could impact sort of those 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 journalists that cover that beat i suppose i think that's the case that 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 matthew panzerino is is making
2: yeah it's hard i mean it's hard to look at this and not you know i think of a a a thick a think tank right with a particular political bent i mean it's interesting that they say they're trying to keep politics out of it and yet I mean, the very nature of this site's existence is politically based. Um, So, you know, I think that's that's a little misleading to suggest that it isn't politicized. I mean, if, if your entire website is catering to a particular perspective on tech um then yeah your 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 business is politicized um I don't want to say propaganda I don't want to use that word because <laughs> I think it might be a little extreme, but um you know they're certainly pushing a particular agenda, and that is most certainly politicized, whether they like it or not
1: yeah, that's true and you know to be honest and and again, this is my my personal view i I do think that you know silicon valley there's some there's some hubris there for sure, right I mean. Their technology has caused a lot of damage. It really has. It's cost lives. I mean, it's got problems. Like, like the the companies that have originated there, a lot of them, a lot of the largest ones, particularly around social networking, it's been damaging. It's been good. I mean, there's a lot good that has come from these companies, but a lot of negative things have come too. And I feel like the 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 world's at the point where, you know, we're we're finally looking at both sides instead of just being optimistic. And I understand why Andreessen and Horowitz would want to avoid the the, the skepticism, and they, do, they don't want to be under the microscope, and they don't want critics to sort of take a look at what they're doing, but they should. I mean, that's part of an accountable society to some degree, right? And um, sometimes I do think they don't quite get how much damage is done sometimes by these technologies where... You know, Facebook talks about, you know, moving fast and breaking things. You know, sometimes breaking things causes real, real problems. um, And hopefully they're kind of starting to see that.
0: Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa. Hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Check it out. Check it out. I want you to check this out.
2: On the PR in Law Podcast. What have you got, Ewan? Yeah, Cam. So I read this great article about, um, did you catch the whole bit with Cristiano Ronaldo at the European Championship in his press conference, and uh, moving the Coca Cola bottles. Oh yes, I did. Yes, theory. I did. Yes, I did. Okay. Well, for for those who who may have missed this, Cristiano Ronaldo, the Portuguese. Soccer phenom um, sat down after a match for a press conference. Coca Cola is sponsoring the the Euro tournament. There was two bottles of Coca Cola in front of him. He sort of sighed, grimaced, moved the bottles aside, and said "agua" and grabbed a water and proceeded to drink it. You know, mm-hmm. looked in, sort of characterizing the Coca Cola with some disdain and <laughs> level of disgust. Yes. Well, shortly thereafter. Um Coca-Cola's stock price dropped by $4 billion. Mm-hmm. Anyway, or so well, it seems. The company's, valuation dropped, the, the company's yeah. valuation dropped $4 billion. The company's valuation dropped $4 billion. But here's the thing. And I and this was this is a Forbes story cams called a post-truth world: why Ronaldo did not move Coca-Cola's share price. And it turns out that sure enough, um, Ronaldo didn't actually have anything to do with Coca-Cola's valuation dropping during that period of time and that there were a number of other issues. The stock had opened lower um, because the market was generally down in that particular day. Another fact. So Coca-Cola's shares became Mm ex-dividend. And uh, Cam, you can probably explain this better than I do better than I can. But in any event, Coca-Cola's market value was already down four billion by the time Ronaldo had his little Coca-Cola snub. So it actually had absolutely nothing to do with him sort of, you know, snubbing the Coca-Cola bottles. So why is this important? Well, you know, Forbes is of course making the argument that one particular journalist picked up the story, ran with it. It was very, very quickly duplicated. And then we ended up in this horrible sort of fake news feedback loop of everybody out there tweeting that Ronaldo had crashed Coca-Cola, um, when in fact that simply wasn't the case. So it's just another one of these cautionary tales, Cam, of, you know, yes, storytelling is important and, you know, sort of a sexy angle to a story. We'll get clicks, but let's make sure we're actually getting the facts accurate.
1: I'm glad you brought this up. Um, Because I I do feel like I mean, everything feels politicized these days and like what, what you're describing there that happened with with the Coke share price. This happens a lot. This happens a lot more than people would know. You know, it's unfortunate because if if you raise skepticism of sort of news coverage or journalists, I do feel like there's a it's a short leap from from there to sort of being a, a Trump supporter. <laughs> if you sort of believe that the media is not being, you know, truthful or they're or they're not being thorough or sort of jumping on, jumping on stories that are just kind of sexy stories, but aren't aren't real or might not be totally real. But but this does happen. And we do have to be skeptical. There's so much competition out there right now. And I mean the the industry is suffering in terms of, you know, job salaries are driven down. There's a lot of very, very young reporters working in it who are not so experienced in many cases. And and these things happen all the time. And so people should be aware. And it's interesting because I actually heard it on a on a radio program. And I did think like that would not cause the share price to go down. Like he removed like there's no change to Coke sponsorship or anything like he just moved the Coke off the table. And I did think to myself, like, well, that doesn't sound right to me. Um, and so, I, yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because that's it's a real it's a real thing. OK, Ewan, well, I've got uh, something that's also related a bit to communications this week. It just seemed like there was quite a bit of stuff coming out. But you and you're you're familiar with In the Heights, Lin-Manuel Miranda's film. It was a musical before Hamilton. It's kind of the one that made Lin-Manuel Miranda famous. But uh, are you familiar with with the musical and the movie?
2: Yes. I mean, well, in so much that I've read about it, I haven't seen either one.
1: (laughs) Okay, I have seen the movie because it is on HBO Max. And uh, it's interesting. Actually, this is a whole other subject. But I mean, HBO released it uh, just for one month on HBO Max so it's there for 4 weeks cuz it's also in theaters. And so this is another thing that they're trying out. Release it there, put it in theaters, but then pull it off the streaming service after a month. I'm not sure how they came up with this idea, but there it is. But uh you and you know the musical for those who don't know, it really is about Washington Heights, which is a neighborhood uh, in New York. It's in Manhattan. North of 96th, I believe. And it's a very diverse neighborhood. Uh, a lot of people from um, of Puerto Rican descent, uh, Cuban descent, Dominican uh, descent. And and the, the movie, it got into some hot water uh, because of the way that the film was cast. And some people have said that it is, it didn't have, it, well, it's been accused of colorism is the term. And you, and have you come across this term before?
2: Yeah, yeah sure. But I mean, it. it this is sort of and look, I don't want to sort of jump in the middle of your story, but this kind of boggles my mind. I mean, like this is the same man who made all of the founding fathers black yes. right? for a play. I mean, how how can Lin-Manuel get into sort of trouble around this issue?
1: Well, so colorism, in case you haven't heard this term, is where people of color with darker skin tones face further discrimination over those with lighter skin tones. And so In the Heights has come under fire for colorism they're accused of excluding afro latinos and critics have said this doesn't accurately represent the diversity of its setting in washington heights um and i want to read you what lin-manuel miranda said here's what he had to say ewan quote i started writing in the heights because i didn't feel seen and over the past 20 years all i wanted was for us all of us to feel seen I'm seeing the discussion around Afro-Latino representation in our film this weekend, and it's clear that many in our dark-skinned Afro-Latino community don't feel sufficiently represented within it, particularly among the leading roles." I can hear the hurt and frustration over colorism, of feeling still unseen in the feedback. I hear that without sufficient dark skinned Afro Latino representation, the work feels extractive of the community we wanted so much to represent with pride and joy. In trying to paint a mosaic of this community, we fell short. I'm truly sorry. I'm learning from the feedback. I thank you for raising it, and I'm listening. I'm trying to hold space for both the incredible pride in the movie we made and be accountable for our shortcomings. Thanks for your honest feedback. I promise to do better in my future projects, and I'm dedicated to the learning and evolving we all have to do to make sure we are honoring our diverse and vibrant community. And I just want to say, you and when I went through this, and I like, I'm a fan of Lin Manuel Miranda. I have seen Hamilton on Broadway as well, not with not with him in it, but um, you know, it's it's a fantastic musical. Um, I had a hint of a feeling of the cultural revolution reading this in terms of the language that he used here, and I think that he wrote this very well. Honestly, I think this is it. It's, it flows very smoothly. I think he addresses all of the key points. But it also, sort of the self-flagellation, I, I do feel like I understand where that's coming from, and I understand it's important in some cases, but sometimes I feel it just goes a bit overboard, and I felt that way a little bit with this here, and I wonder how we will look at this, sort of, decades in the future. And I don't know if this is effective or not. I think, in Lin-Manuel Miranda's case, I think it really is from the heart. I mean, he's I mean, he's Latino himself, partially, so... But it but it is interesting in terms of in terms of text and in terms of of reviewing this and the public nature of these kinds of apologies, uh, it's going to be something we look back on differently. I suspect.
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, particularly in situations like this, where you have an individual who is an ally, right? Um, and I, I mean, these are very very real issues. I mean, let's not let's not you know let's not mince words there. But I, I mean, could the could the concern not be better addressed at individuals that are in no way supportive of, you know, art, culture, film, television that is reflective of the communities from which they 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 originate? Mm-hmm. I mean, this sounds like an individual who has gone to great lengths to try and accurately reflect and to his own admission, he's come up short, but I mean, he's making an effort. Now I'm not saying that that means, Hey, you, you you're, you're, but that's
1: the enough. Hook. Yeah, exactly.
2: In, in its entirety. I mean, I, I think everybody would agree. Yeah. Okay. Look, we all have to do more in this regard, but you would think that that sort of anger, frustration, vitriol. And again, I'm not, I'm not familiar with the story, so I don't know what the pushback was, but you think it could probably be better addressed at all kinds of stories that make no attempt whatsoever to sort of accurately reflect, um, the communities from, from which these stories originate rather than Lin-Manuel Miranda. I mean, I I don't know. It, It just, it, something that just strikes me as off here, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, you're right. And that doesn't mean that he's off the hook. Like you say, like it, it's um, everyone has room to improve, right? But you are making a good point, though. Like there are people out there who are way further behind <laughs> in that process than Lin-Manuel. And especially, you know, I had seen the controversy before I had watched the film. So I actually watched the film yesterday thinking that oh, there must be a lot of either white people in here or not very dark skinned people. But that was I, I don't think there was one white person in the whole the whole movie actually and a lot of it's in spanish too it's uh yeah like you say he, he's more of an ally um we're almost out of time here you and so just really quickly i want to mention one more uh, it's in the daily beast it is titled sex deceit and scandal the ugly war over bob ross's ghost we don't have time to get into it but i recommend this read you remember bob ross Ewan? the guy oh of course there. i remember <laughs> bob
2: ross yes <Yeah. laughs>
1: This is fascinating. You have no idea what's been happening with him since he passed away and his estate. It is insane. So check that out too.
2: Okay, maybe we should do our our outro, Cameron, in a Bob Ross like voice, calm, quiet. Did you? I like. I
1: watched it, but never on purpose. Like it was either on. Yeah, I, I agree with <laughs> you. You know, like I feel like I've seen a lot of it, but I never once turned on Bob Ross like I just it was either on or I don't know how it ended up there but I've seen a lot of them that's for
2: sure except that it's mesmerizing right it was was, you're flipping through and you land on it and and it's like I, I don't know it's it, it it it's like a deer in the headlights, a moth to a flame, Cam. It's just it you is. Yeah, you it just you can't turn it off. There's something that's transfixing about. It. Yeah, I was gonna use that word. Transfix. I don't know what it is. Or it's his voice? Is It's like is, it, is there something in his voice? Has he been trained by like some secret operative to, you know, mind control people with his? You know calm and reflective tones i don't know there's something going on the fact
1: that it's his his tone yeah he's i mean very soft and it's it is like a hypnosis kind of thing but he's also painting usually a nice landscape right and so you're watching very slowly like stroke by stroke on his brush like trees appearing and mountains and and he's also talking softly so it is very like you can get carried away in that i think you forget everything else going on in the world
2: yeah, absolutely. I'm going to put on some Bob Ross right that's, now. Okay. I was just
1: thinking I should put this on. It sounds good. Well, anyway, thank you for joining us again this week. Jeez, we, we debated all kinds of stuff today. Uh, and happy uh, belated Father's Day for me, but happy Father's Day to you and, and all the other fathers out there as well. Uh, don't miss a show. Please subscribe in your podcast app of choice or in our YouTube and SoundCloud channels and social media, of course, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And make sure you sign up for our newsletter, which we changed a bit uh, and we're looking to improve, prlawpodcast.club. So for you and Christie, this is Cam McMurchie. Light it up.
0: This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewing and Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word. P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.